because of the kind of continuous sense of rebuke that runs through every chapter and nearly every verse. James goes to great lengths in laboring the point that a Christian should act in a way that is in keeping with what they say they believe. If a Christian goes on neglecting the practical outworking of their belief, then James would have them question the authenticity of that belief. James would tell us to be wary of people who say that all Christ requires is for us to simply say that we believe in him. The Christian theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard points out the flaw in such a belief. We don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. If I told you that I loved Moses, Moses is my son, Paul said, but my actions didn't reflect it, if I didn't spend any time with him or didn't really have a relationship with him, I'm pretty sure that you wouldn't believe that I love him. If the letter of James could be summarized into a slogan, it would read something like, belief will inevitably lead to action. I'll say that again because it's important. Belief will inevitably lead to action. The late Tim Keller demonstrated his right understanding of the relationship between belief and action when he said that we are saved by faith alone, but that faith does not remain alone. Keller knew, just as James knew, that real faith produces real works. But there's going to be more on that next week. Because this point is repeated throughout James, I think it must bear repeating throughout this preaching series and beyond, because it really is that important. James is addressing the mindset held by those who would read scripture, the Bible, as a book to be analysed rather than a message to be obeyed. Last week we heard those famous words, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves Do what it says. The reason why the letter passionately addresses the relationship between faith and works is because James was convicted that a disciple of Christ who does not love their neighbor, no matter who they might be, is standing on dangerous ground. In particular, today's passage, which we will turn to in a moment, stresses that as soon as love gives way to partiality, that's just another way of uh, saying favoritism, It no longer reflects the love that Christ demonstrated. Jesus does not call us to look and admire him from a distance. He wants us to follow him. That means putting into practice what he teaches. Being diligent in our work and vigilant in every situation so that we might avoid falling into temptation and sin. My friends, my family... Let us not be deceived. The act of listening to the word is just not enough. Christ will not be magnified through our lives if we only listen. The poor will not be cared for by the church if we only listen. Our relationships with one another and with the Lord will not flourish if we only listen. The gospel will advance Because Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Amen? But we will sadly have very little to do with that glorious process if we only listen.
listening alone is not what confirms the truth of your faith to a broken world. Only being a doer of the word will do that. James pulls no punches. This letter has and will continue to challenge me until I go to be with Jesus. And although I don't want to reduce the intended impact of the message, I do want to reassure us and help quiet some of the anxieties that might be bubbling up. I actually think that it's a good thing if James makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. It's a sign that you take following Jesus seriously and that you care about pleasing him. I know most people in City West really well. And I know that you love and cherish Christ. So please be reassured by what I'm about to say. Guys, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have tasted and have seen the grace of God, then you will be transformed. For the rest of your time on this passing world, you will be, as the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, transformed into the same image as Christ from one degree of glory to another. My friends, if the Holy Spirit has energized your heart so that the vision of the Son of God pinned to a cross, broken and bleeding for your sins, spurned and crushed to bring you liberty, killed to bring you everlasting life, arouses deep gratitude in your spirit, then I have no doubt that any areas of weakness that James might highlight will be worked out in their proper time. For Christ, who called you, is more than able. With this in mind, I just want to pray, and then we're going to jump into today's passage. Lord Jesus, may you be glorified. May you be glorified in the preparation and the speaking and the interpretation of your word today. My friend Joe, he said, as we were praying at the beginning, the book of James has a kick to it. This is true, Lord. But I pray against any anxieties. We don't want to be an anxious people. We want to be a confident people because we have your spirit in us. We've been reborn. So may any challenge that comes today fall, fall on good soil and help us to glorify you more and more as we live this life together. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to James and we're looking at uh, chapter 2. Uh, Verses 1 to 13. I'm just going to read it. Reading from the NIV. Favoritism forbidden. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? 
Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him, of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, um, I read that wrong. If you do commit adultery, but do, uh, if you don't commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Way to go, James. So the first four verses provide us with uh, the central theme and context of today's passage. What we have is a picture of an early church gathering that has fallen victim to showing favoritism. The word favoritism comes from the original Greek. Here's some Greek, look. It's a real preach. It's got Greek in it. (laughs) The Greek word is prosolempsia, which means to receive the face. It's a classic case of judging a book by its cover, basically. Judgment based on things like physical appearance, social status, or race. James's illustration presents two men of very different socioeconomic backgrounds entering a Christian gathering. The stark contrast between the two is highlighted by the clothes they are wearing. One bears the marks of wealth. His gold ring and fine clothing are strikingly similar to the kind of garbs that upper-class Roman citizens were accustomed to wearing. He's powerful, influential, respectable. The other man bears the marks of poverty. He is dressed in filthy rags. He is unwashed, disheveled, a nobody. We can imagine that he is invisible until he makes a nuisance of himself and needs to be dealt with. The only thing that these two men have in common is that they both happen to be visiting the same assembly of Christians. Both are conducted to the places that best suit their worldly worth and importance. The rich man is given special attention and is led to a seat of honour. I don't know what a seat of honour would look like, but maybe a throne or something. No such treatment is afforded the poor man. He is ordered to stand here, likely at a distance from the rest of the congregation, so they do not have to smell his dirt and filth. Alternatively, if he likes, he can take a seat by the feet of the one who is barking commands at him. We see that his existence is reduced to that of a dog, really. He's not any inferior, but he's altogether a different kind of creature to his rich opposite. In order to argue that this discrimination is entirely unacceptable, James draws on Leviticus 19.15. Let's read it, and you'll notice that James's words are really similar to those recorded by Moses. You don't have to, you can turn there if you want to, 
I'm going to read it. Um, Leviticus 19.15. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Backed by the authority of scripture's unchanging moral laws and God's unwavering character, James calls any who harbor partiality in their hearts judges with evil thoughts. James's understanding of the relationship between Old Testament law and the commands given in the New Testament become clearer later on. And we will return to the subject in due course. But for now, it is enough to say that our God's interests never change. And the same can be said for his commands. He remains absolutely consistent throughout the whole of scripture. I don't know about you, but I find this deeply reassuring. That our God cannot and will not change. God does not judge someone by the condition of their clothes or the size of their bank account, but by the condition of their heart and how they relate to those around them. He is kind-hearted and charitable to all, and we, being his people, are to follow suit. God has always hated the rich and poor being divided, especially when it is happening within his church. The Lord is all about reconciliation. His justice and love produces bonds of unity rather than walls of separation. The Apostle Paul understood how much God hates discrimination. He speaks out against a similar division that he noticed between Jews and Gentiles in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Here he writes that Christ has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. How has he done this? On the cross. According to Paul, the things that had once divided Jew and Gentile have now given way to the greater unity that is gained through a shared belief in the sacrifice of Christ. As Christ was killed on the cross, so too was the sinful hostility that stemmed from the differences between separate ethnic groups. James makes it clear that it is not just hostility arising between different ethnicities that Christ has abolished on the cross, but all divisions James's vision for the church was groundbreaking. In a world dominated by systems of superiority, he preached the idea of equality in Christ. He proclaimed that we have in com- what we have in common is far more worthy of our attention and energies than what makes us different. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples that the poor would always be present, which means that James's message is just as relevant to us today, as it was back then. St. Jerome, Catholic saint, standing on dangerous ground now, St. Jerome said that we are to seek to learn on earth those truths which will remain ever valid in heaven. Seek to learn on earth those truths which will remain ever valid in heaven. In a similar way, Paul said in Philippians that we are to live as citizens of heaven, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Well, guys, as citizens of heaven, those who have been shaped by heavenly truths and justice, we cannot be a divided people. We are to stoop down and wash the poor man's feet, not have him sit at ours. 
Right, I'm, uh, I'm going to hand over to my brother Paul now, who's going to continue to unpack some of the challenges we might face in our, in our mission to care for the poor. As well as talk a little bit about how Christ interacted with the rich and the poor during his own ministry. Uh, the application. It is his example, Christ's, that we follow. So it's important for us to see how he navigates these social and economic differences that are still so prevalent, tragically so, in our society today. I'll hand over to Paul. Thanks. <laughs> okay, so James points us really towards God, towards God's heart. We see this in verses 5 uh, to 7. Read along with me. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So we'll focus in just for a few minutes on that verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Now, I really love murder mysteries. Who's with me? Yeah, you love a murder mystery. Now, in murder mysteries, the, the killers always have an MO, Yeah. They have an MO, a modus operandi, something that sets them apart, something that the investigators are like, actually, I think we've cottoned on to something that makes this person unique and the way they kill people. Uh, Slightly less serious uh, sort of thought uh, would be Home Alone. So Home Alone is one of my favorite films uh, from my era. And in Home Alone, there are these thieves who basically break into houses and uh, one of the thieves, they're not very clever, not very bright, but one of the thieves has a modus operandi. And it's basically every house that they go in and steal stuff from, they turn all the taps on and uh, block up the drain, the, like the hole in the sink, so that it floods. So then obviously when they get caught, the police know, right, you've done that house, that house, that house, and that house. A modus operandi. It's the thing that you're known for and known about. And Jesus has a modus operandi. He has something that it, everyone's like, this is what you are known for. And for Jesus, it's not you know, flooding houses, thankfully. But his modus operandi was hanging around with sinners. It was hanging around with prostitutes. It was hanging around with tax collectors. It was being present with and accepting and loving those who were the down and outs, those who were the outcasts of society. We see this in really clear, uh, a clear way in Luke chapter 8. So turn with me to Luke 8 verses 43. So Jesus is on the way, uh, basically he's on the way to heal uh, Jairus' daughter. Jairus has come up to him and said, look, my daughter is dying. Please would you come and heal her? And there's a big crowd around, uh, such a big crowd that um, it was almost like, is there going to be uh, some people crushed in this crowd? It was big. It was a re- really big. So anyway, Jesus is on his way to go and heal uh, Jairus' daughter. Let's pick it up from verse 43. A woman who was there, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him, that's Jesus, and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. So you've got this, this uh, picture of this woman uh, who's in the crowd. 
Okay? She doesn't really want to be seen. She doesn't want to be known. She just wants her healing. Understandably, for 12 years, this woman has experienced probably being an outcast, so a religious outcast uh, from society, but from her, uh, you know, her Jewish roots as well. You know, she would have been an outcast, not accepted, not able to partake in many uh, of the customs that the Jewish people uh, would have taken part of. But also, probably, actually, she had gone to lots of people for healing. Maybe she might have even paid money uh, for that. She probably wouldn't have been able to, to work um, as well. So really, probably just physically, emotionally, spiritually impoverished. Okay, she was a, probably a poor uh, lady in many ways. And she was desperate. She was desperate. She wanted her healing, but she hoped uh, to blend back in. She came up behind him, touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. She gets healed. Amazing. That's how Jesus treats the poor. He heals them. Amazing. Then Jesus says, I think everyone's probably on ten hooks, just this sense of, uh, like, well, how's Jesus going to treat this woman? Like, he obviously knows that he's, he's the son of God. He knows. He's got some divine knowledge of what's going on uh, here. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. So Jesus was not going to let this lady just go. Okay? She'd already been healed, so the, work, the good work had already been done. Jesus had more for this lady. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had been touched. Um, sorry, sorry. She told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. I mean, what an affirming word, daughter, an outcast, a poor, someone who is destitute, being called a daughter from the Son of God. There's affirmation there. There's love. There's care. This is Jesus' MO. This is how Jesus operates. This is the Father heart of God. Now, this is how Jesus treats people who can do nothing for him. But Jesus, thankfully, went a, a, a long way further. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So Jesus gave up everything he had to become a man. He became poor. He had everything that he needed. Perfect relationship in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Perfect relationship. He had everything he needed. He was, he was, he was affirmed by the, the Holy Spirit and God the Father. And yet they made a plan. No, you be poor so that those people that I've created can be made rich. He who hung up the stars in the sky came to dwell in a lowly manger. He who created man became a man. He who created the earth came to walk on the earth. He who men bow, and men and women bow to worship, stooped to wash his disciples' feet. He who created the sun to shine died in darkness so that we could dwell in his everlasting light. So Jesus gave up everything to die a criminal's death to make the poor rich. We are the poor. 
We are the poor. We are spiritually poor before God. Without Jesus Christ, we have nothing. And yet in Christ, for those who have repented and turned to Jesus Christ, we have everything. We are made rich in him. Though he was rich, yet for, for our sake he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the gospel, the heart of the gospel. We are the poor. We're the woman in that story. We're the outcast that Jesus has moved towards us in salvation to offer us life and life eternal. The question then is really, what will we do and how will we treat others who might be materially poor, physically poor, spiritually poor? Will we go, yeah, actually, maybe I deserved a bit of that, you know, that salvation that God's given me. Maybe I am a good person. Maybe they deserve what they've got. Actually, the gospel shows us, Jesus shows us, and through the cross we see that actually there's no room for boasting. So actually, when we're before someone who is maybe less fortunate than us, or in a tricky situation, the onus is on us to move towards that person in love, in kindness, in grace, recognizing that we're the sinners. We're those who have got it wrong. We need God's grace, and thankfully, we've experienced God's grace. So we move towards people with that heart. Let me encourage you to dwell on Christ. If you're struggling to do that, dwell on Christ's heart for you and for the people maybe that you're struggling to move towards. He will change your heart. He'll transform your heart. Read his word, spend time with him, press in to know more of Jesus. So good. Jesus is so cool, isn't he? I love Jesus. Oh, I'm so technologically advanced. I use an iPad, but I can't always remember the code. Um, So we're now going to Hello? Yeah, okay. We're now going to consider uh, what is perhaps the most theological part of today's passage. We're going to do it quite quickly. We're going to get through this, guys. Um, this is verses 8 to 13. Kind of fasten your seatbelts maybe, but uh, look, just on a serious note, if if anything that's said today cuz James is tricky. It's theologically tricky. It's tricky. Um, if you want to come talk to me or Paul or Steve or your life group leaders or anybody just to hash some of this stuff out, please please come and talk to me. I would love to talk to you about this stuff. Um, okay? So 8 to 13. James draws heavily on the prominent Old Testament theme of caring for the poor and claims that Christians will be judged by a law that is founded on the demand to love all people. James calls this law the royal law, and it's most likely a reference to Leviticus 19.18, which says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. He continues in his usual tone of caution and claims that the royal law can only be fulfilled if partiality is avoided. This law, as Paul's kind of already um, said, this law was central to Christ's ministry 
And it's perhaps here called royal because James recognized its importance to Old Testament monarchs, but more importantly, to the king of heaven himself. Not only was it prioritized by Christ, but as is the case with a number of the Old Testament laws about human relationships, he broadens its application. The Old Testament understanding of who can be counted as a neighbor, a title usually reserved for a fellow Israelite, is expanded by Christ to include everyone that a Christian comes into contact with. There really is no playing favorites in the kingdom of God. At the end of verse 8, James says that we are doing right if we follow the royal law. But if we don't, then we will, as verse 9 makes clear, be convicted by the law as lawbreakers. This is where we return to James's understanding about the relationship between Old Testament law and the commands given in the New Testament. Clearly, James does not view the New Testament's doctrine of grace as being wholly separate from the Old Testament law. Understanding this, guys, is, is really important for us. It will help us avoid the heresy of what can be called cheap grace. Fake grace. Cheap grace is not only powerless to transform you, but it is also unhelpful in its overemphasis of the idea that Christ requires no action from those who claim to be his disciples. The heart of what James is getting at can be understood like this. We do have a law that we are supposed to follow, and it is here called the royal law. It is also referred to in Galatians 2.6 as the law of Christ. And its basis is what Christ referred to as one of the most important of the Old Testament commandments. That is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This surely means that the New Testament does not exclude or do away with the idea of law, but emphasizes that the grace which saves us also empowers us to obey what Christ viewed as one of the most important points of the Old Testament law. We are then saved and empowered by grace, which should lead to obedience of the law of Christ. What does that look like? Well, in context of today's passage, it certainly shouldn't look like showing favoritism, partiality. Or discriminating against our neighbors. It is true that discrimination has been a big issue since the fall. It's a long time. It's been a long, long ongoing issue. But never before has it received so much public attention as it does today. We scarcely get through a single day without a report being published that uncovers some kind of systemic injustice. So many news headlines are about individuals abusing their positions of power. So many podcasts are dedicated to critiquing culture. So many songs are composed and books written about how numerous minorities have been and, con have been and continue to be mistreated. More than ever, society is aware that everything has the potential to be unfair and people should not have to put up with it. And while I think it is a good thing that genuine injustice is being rooted out, 
It is tragic to see that some attempts to try and rectify the problem have actually given rise to fresh strands of discrimination. And that will inevitably happen if Christ is not Lord. This is where the church steps in, though, guys. Look, we're not to manage society. We are to serve it. We are to be a shining example, a city on a hill. Or, as John Howard Yoder, interesting name, hey? John Howard Yoder puts it in his book, The Politics of Jesus, let the church be a restored society. This has always been our divine purpose. In his book, Dominion, Tom Holland, the historian, not Spider-Man, does a wonderful job of demonstrating how the church pioneered social justice and equality for all people because it recognized that all humans, regardless of their dress, nationality, social class, race, or sex, were created in the image of God and were therefore imbued with inherent worth. Whether the secular world acknowledges this or not, the reality is that the West's moral floorboards are inescapably Christian. It's not necessarily our job to argue this truth with people, but it is our job to continue where our forebears left off. We are to love the poor. Let's just bring this into land. James closes with a particularly tricky couple of passages. Speak and act as those, uh, as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The mention of uh, judgment and law can make us feel a little bit uneasy. But we can't escape the fact that a theme runs throughout the New Testament, that Christians will be judged on the basis of their conformity to the will of God as it is expressed by Jesus himself and the apostles. These final verses hit the point home that while we have been graciously accepted by God, we are not free from obligation to obey him. Guys, obedience is vital because Christ commands it of us. And being careful in our judgments and quick to show mercy to our neighbours is vital because Christ said, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But I'm really, really, really eager for this to not cause us anxiety. <laughs> um, listen, the foundations from which our obedience now flows is much greater than it was under the old covenant in the Old Testament. In Christ, we have been freed from the penalty and power of sin. Not only this, but we have received the Holy Spirit who gives us the supernatural power to obey our Lord. The law of Christ is different from the Old Testament law in that it does not lead to death, but to freedom. It is a law that gives us freedom. Look, James knows, we all know, that we will never be able to fulfill the royal law perfectly. But our lives, guys, our lives should reflect mercy and compassion. When we stand before the throne of God, as we all will, 
the mercy that we have shown in this life will count as proof that Christ really dwells within us. Believers will never fall under condemnation by God. Romans 8 makes this very clear. But we will be judged and rewarded on how we conduct ourselves in this life. Dallas Willard, I love Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard said that grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. I'll read read that again. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. There is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. That has been won by Christ. When we invite Jesus into our lives, everything changes. We have received a new heart with new desires, desires that will lead us to strive to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our souls, and all our minds. And this, according to Jesus, will lead us to love our neighbors as ourselves. I know that we're running close up to time, but let's just, let's just respond in worship. Guys, Ed, Stuart, please come back up. want to reiterate if uh, you want to come talk to me or or any of the elders or um, any of your life group leaders I would encourage that Um, you know challenging stuff this guys but come come talk to me I love you guys you're my family we're a liberated people are we not not only a people of the word but of the spirit as well This means that we are to seek God's will in his word and then ask the spirit to help us walk in it. This is not a burden, guys, but the greatest of privileges. This is not a burden, but the greatest of adventures. We are to marinate like a good bit of meat. We are to marinate in the gospel because the more we submerge ourselves in the greatest love that has ever been shown, the more the Holy Spirit will be able to turn our meditations into actions that please God. I think this is what James thought it meant to be a Christian. If James were here today, you guys can start playing quite a little. Lulling us with your sweet tones. I just want to pray. If James were here today, I think he might have uh, said something like this you've been washed by the blood of Christ then it does not matter where you come from or what you have done or what your struggles might be I am honoured to call you my brother or sister and to declare with you that God Almighty is our Father as we gather together as we're about to do as we lift our eyes heavenward, as we stand in awe and wonder our matchless King, who himself was content to be counted among the lowly, may our hearts be knitted together by the Holy Spirit. Let hostility be surrendered and replaced with a mutual striving 
for one another's well-being. Lord, help us never to forget that through the Lord, for the love, through the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are one. And Lord, please, as James says, do not let us become judges with evil thoughts, but mirror images of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord protect us. And may the Lord make all this come to pass. You're covered in grace. He loves you. And he is going to transform you from glory to glory. I'm certain of it. Amen.